Have you ever looked at a portrait and wondered, who was this person really? It's really a love story. Harriet was motivated by love. And he became known for his undercover reporting. He got himself arrested. And also he's a tremendous dresser, LL Cool J. I'm Kim Sayed, director of the National Portrait Gallery and your host on Portraits. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I think what's going on now is that people are more interested in really rewriting the rules <laughs> as much as they can. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. As the coronavirus pandemic and ongoing protests over entrenched police violence continue to provoke a reckoning over longstanding racism in the United States, the art world has been doing a lot of vastly overdue soul-searching when it comes to issues of equity and representation in its ranks. It's no secret to anybody who has been to pretty much any tentpole art fair or biennial that the fine art community is exceedingly glaringly white, and not only in terms of who wields power, but also what artworks are embraced. According to studies conducted by Artnet News, less than 3% of museum acquisitions over the decade ending in 2018 were of work by African-American artists. In that same period, only 1.2% of money spent at auction went for work by African-American artists, and if you take Basquiat out of the equation, that percentage falls to just over a quarter of 1%. What is less well understood, however, are the systemic forces that bring this imbalance about. This is something that the journalist Melissa Smith is working hard to change. Over the past year, Melissa has written a series of in-depth articles investigating the various hurdles that black artists and other art workers face in the art industry, ranging from the social pressures and subtle discrimination that black students face in America's mostly white elite art schools, to the burnout that awaits young black artists who are trying to seize what they worry is a fleeting moment of art market relevance. For her latest article, Melissa's reporting took her not to an institution, but to a city, Pittsburgh. Today, to talk about why Pittsburgh matters in the broader debate over equity in the art community, I'm very happy to have Melissa Smith on the show. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Melissa. Thank you for having me, Andrew. So what drew you to writing about the art ecosystem in Pittsburgh? Well, I um, read, along with a lot of other people, that City Lab article that was released, I think, late last year on the conditions of black women, mainly economic and health conditions, in uh, various cities across the country. And uh, Pittsburgh landed on the bottom <laughs> in a lot of these polls. And I think this is something that the city had been grappling with for a while now, just because a lot of people have chosen to leave. So um, within... Another conversation with the city was whether or not people should just grin and bear it and stay, regardless of the fact that it's a city that's inhospitable to them and doesn't really benefit them health-wise. And like I said, a lot of people are dealing with that right now. And a lot of neighborhoods have been abandoned within the city. Just to elaborate on that study, it said that Pittsburgh is, of all the cities in America it is the single worst city for black women to live on any number of metrics. Are there any 
points from the study that really stood out to you in a, in a visceral way? Well, I think for the city, and um, it was this city and a host of other Midwest cities, so I think it's kind of this post-industrial condition wherein Black people flock to these areas with the hope that they would have a better life, and then that hope was slowly and methodically chipped away at as the opportunities were taken away. So it makes the conditions of their life right now even worse, knowing that they came there thinking that their lives would be so much better. What, what was the connection that you made between this really dire report and a desire to investigate what was going on in its art community? Well, when I read about the cities, I just know people working within these cities and I know people who have chosen to stay, you know, and there are many reasons behind that. A lot of times it's cheaper to live in these cities. So people choose to stay for those reasons, but they're doing it at the cost of their own livelihood. <laughs> in, in many instances, these cities are not great places for them to live, but they choose to live there anyway and they choose to reinvest within their communities, regardless of how it may impact them. And again, I've been following some of these people, so I thought there was a way to cover it with as an art story. And, and you decided to do this by talking to several black women who are working to raise up their local art communities. So one of these women was Alicia Wormsley, an artist who has collaborated with art groups in Pittsburgh for several years now. What made you want to talk to her in particular? Again, she is one of the women who I have been following just as an artist and as a Black female artist because I, I take particular care in following what the Black female artist community is doing. Um, her project just kind of hit the nail on the head as far as Black people moving out of the city because it was so inhospitable to them. So I thought that in talking to Alicia, I can get to the reasons behind that and also what she's doing to counteract it through her work as an artist. I think it was for her happening as she decided to move back to Pittsburgh. She hadn't even decided to stay, but she was working with the students on this project. It was a film project. I think it was like a zombie film she was working on. And in trying to canvas for locations, they realized it was just too easy to find one given the level of abandonment that was around them. So, and it's just for her as a black woman who grew up in the city, it's hard to see and emotionally taxing as somebody who's trying to reinvest in the community and make it better. So what exactly was the project that she did? Yeah, so the, the project definitely took a life of its own. When she, she, I think she just went home and just out of frustration said, there are Black people in the future. And then her partner said something like, that's a really good line, you should use that. So she did, and she integrated into a ton of her art projects and doing it in a really kind of community-focused way, you know, giving it to the students so they could plaster it over the city. And I think John Rubin, who is the curator in charge of the last billboard project, suggested that she put the quote on the billboard. And then after that is when the, the controversy erupted. So she put up this gigantic billboard in the city that had the words, there are Black people in the future, which is just a statement of... of obvious fact. And the landlord of this building got some complaints that she thought were persuasive enough to take it down because it was being perceived as somehow being um, anti-white. It's just, it really is hard for me to, to talk about it because I guess white people considered it racist. I'm so far removed from understanding why they consider it racist or offensive. It's hard for me to opine on it, you know? Like, even after reading their side of things, and I think Alicia was equally taken aback by it, to be honest. Like, when she first thought about doing the project, she was more concerned about how the Black community would take it because 
they were dealing with the rapid gentrification that was going on around them and she didn't want to put salt in that wound, you know? <laughs> but it, I don't think it ever occurred to her that other people would um, consider the line racist. And then she took it down and the reaction to taking it down was like tenfold the opposition to the thing. And it, it's just extraordinary because you have all this debate in the country over the innocuous phrase Black Lives Matter. But this is like the most innocuous just statement of, of fact. Why do you think that created such an uproar or, you know, even like a little controversy in, in Pittsburgh? I'm speculating here, but again, I think you hit the nail on the head is the idea that white people weren't acknowledged in that statement. And um, I and I think everybody assumes, especially in kind of liberal circles that we run in, that the country is much further along than it actually is. And uh, people can be upset by that, that they're not being represented in a statement that has to do with black people. So Alicia did something really interesting where she was able to, to judo this controversy into something positive. What, what did she do? Specifically what Alicia did is that she heard that this controversy was being cited in an equity conference. And I think mm-hmm. the conference was being held by the Heinz Endowment. And she said, well, if they're gonna use this as an, as an example for equity, like I'm gonna basically go back to them and ask for money so that I can continue this project and do so by supporting local artists within the community. She asked them for a grant that she can then re-grant to different local artists and they can integrate that phrase into their work. So it basically Hmm. continued the timeline of this project. Hmm. I was kind of awestruck by how she's been able to maneuver the philanthropic world as well as she has. And and just I'll say up front that Alicia feels as though she's gotten quite a bit of support from the city for her projects. But it has taken a certain amount of maneuvering. And I think the issue here is that she will offer to do a project with the curator or somebody else involved in the, the art scene and they'll be happy to work with her, but it isn't something that they consider doing without her asking them to do it. <laughs> so, and that kind of comes down to my issue with the industry at large is that doing these things and understanding the diversity and equity issues that are involved in their business is just not part of their ethos. And they need to make it part of their ethos because that makes more sense now as ever. It's interesting that she had to take the initiative and reach out, even though there was all this media attention, and force the hand of this grant-giving entity to, to give her money. I think that's the point. I think that's what I'm, I'm trying to get at here is that she has to go beyond in order to exploit whatever it is that's going on in order to get money rather than that money just being offered her due to the service that she's providing to the community. <laughs> and I, this is a real key point in your article, which is that for artists who live in Pittsburgh, which is demographically a third black, mm-hmm. it's not that easy for them to get funding for art that is being made out of their community, about their experience. What is it that is the impediment here? What is the problem with the funding structure, particularly in a city like Pittsburgh? Well, I think that's an indictment on the system as a whole, but if we would just want to focus in on uh, Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. I was talking to a Black woman who works inside the Pittsburgh Foundation, and she said that the, the kind of the rules that govern how philanthropy works have been written quite a long time ago. (laughs) 
And given the fact that they've been written in stone for so long, there's no reason to assume that they would privilege black work when it just they were never set up to do that. It takes a long time to work against that. And she's trying to do it little by little, and hopefully she makes some headway. I think one thing that has emerged in a number of studies of philanthropy has been that the money is not given out in proportion to the demographic makeup of the communities that it's giving to. So Mm -hmm. the people that it gives money to is disproportionately white in proportion to the demographics of that community. Yeah. How, how is it possible to fight against this? And, and also, why is it important? Vanessa German really put it beautifully and pointedly when she said that uh, the philanthropic community in Pittsburgh does not trust or have faith in Black artists and Black leaders. And I think in order to change anything with respect to that philanthropic world, attitudes are going to need to change. And just to give you a real life example, and this is kind of something that's tacitly understood by almost all the black artists and creative workers in Pittsburgh, um, is that let's say a black person and a white person who applied for the same grant using the same project, and the white person basically got the grant. So it can't be any more simple than that. And fortunately for them, the white person decided that they would work in collaboration with the black person on the project that was applied, that was awarded the money. But that's only out of the kindness of that white person's heart, not because the black person actually received the funds he or she needed to do the project he or she wanted to do. So you mentioned the artist Vanessa German, and she represents kind of an interesting counterexample to how to sustainably fund culture in communities. What brought you to her? Alicia told me to reach out to Vanessa, but I've been, again, as I follow Black women artists, I've been following her work for quite some time. But I was really happy that I was able to talk to her because she provided a good counterexample to how to navigate yourself as an artist within Pittsburgh. And, you know, there's on the one hand, Alicia maneuvers a lot, applies for a lot of grants, makes sure to, to know exactly what's happening on the ground in order to manipulate it to her benefit. And uh, Vanessa just kind of opted out. And she was very clear about this. She, she wasn't like sitting alone in her room, squirreled away in a corner doing her work and figuring out how to fund it on her own. She literally used the community to fund her work so then she can give back to the community. It was a mutually supportive cycle. Well, let, let's step back for a moment because her story is really fascinating and it's really inspiring. What is the saga of Vanessa German? Yeah, well, Vanessa, she came, I think, following her parents who moved to Pittsburgh. She's very committed to um, specifically the Homeward section of Pittsburgh. And she didn't even know when she first got there she was going to be an artist. But, you know, that's where life took her initially. And I think uh, this sentiment was echoed by a few other people that I spoke with. When you decide to be a Black artist in Pittsburgh, just the idea of that isn't supported. (laughs) I think Naomi Chambers mentioned how people are just trying to steer her away from referencing race in her work at all because they figured that wouldn't help her succeed. So, I mean, just consider trying to be an artist and how hard it is to identify yourself as a capital A artist and doing so when there's a community of people telling you not to pay attention to the things that are core to who you are. Can you describe the the art that she makes? Yes, so she made her name making these power figures and they're basically like female dolls that she makes with repurposed parts and then adds these seemingly incruent objects to them. 
And they're just really powerful because it then ends up being more symbolic than they even seem as you look and relook at them. <laughs> so Vanessa started to get more traction. And she said that the, the timing of it was actually really great. So when she decided that she wasn't going to be beholden to foundations for money to support her work, she chose to crowdsource instead. And that was right around the time that these crowdsourcing sites like Indiegogo and the like were becoming more popular. So she basically leveraged off that. And that's by and large, along with literally personal relationships that she forged with people. Hey, send me this money. I'll send you a piece. That's the way she funded her practice for a really long time until she tapped into the fundraising community on her own terms. So Vanessa German, she moved to the Homewood neighborhood of Pittsburgh, which is one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the entire city. And she decided to live there in a house that she bought for about $1,000 with no running water as almost like the city equivalent of living off the land. She didn't ask for grant funding. She was trying to be as sustainable as possible. And she started making these incredible sculptures that got attention from art dealers who started Mm -hmm. to say that they would sell them. Just going back a little bit, the way that she described it to me is that she was initially squatting in the first house Mm -hmm. she lived in in Homewood. So I'm not sure, maybe you read something different, but it it was my understanding that the landlord just let her stay there. But given the fact that she wasn't paying, wasn't going to provide running water. So um, basically she did that until she could sell enough work to invest in the community and buy now, which she now has three properties on the first street. (laughs) So I just wanted to point out that uh, a lot of times local artists need to seek legitimacy outside of their local communities in order to get the support they need within the, those communities. So, for for example, Vanessa German received the Lewis Comfort Tiffany grant. And as a result of that, since it's so reputable, a lot of the foundations back in Pittsburgh were more willing to talk with her and give her money for her work. How interesting. And so she managed to take this property in the Homewood community and turn it into something that was almost like a little bit of a public art school. People would come gather on her porch and and make artworks. And I mean, it didn't become like this beautiful, you know, sunny, happy community overnight. But she really, she got elevated over time and really became a very powerful figure in, in Pittsburgh. Yeah. I mean, when art's not used as a tool for gentrification, it's not going to change the surrounding neighborhood of where it is. And I think when art is used as kind of more of a community-centered tool, it's a long game. So what Vanessa is trying to do, and I'm not trying to speak out of turn here, but she's trying to support young children who literally came to her house and started watching her make art through her basement window and wanted to do it too. So she's really trying to make a connection with the next generation of people in this neighborhood. She calls herself uh, a, quote, citizen artist. And what I thought was a really great line in your article was that you said that women like Vanessa German behave as threats to the status quo. What is it about what she's doing, this much more grassroots way of gaining funding and building up from the ground level. What is it about that that makes her a threat to the status quo? 
I mean, I think this applies to basically all the women I wrote about in the article. People assume they're preset channels to use in order to support yourself as an artist. And she chose to work outside of that established system of philanthropy. And it worked for her. And I think a lot of people who I wrote about in the article, they're trying to rewrite the rules of how things are traditionally done. And doing that is hard because they're attempting to create an alternative ecosystem. So, of course, they're going to face some pushback, but they're trying to make the industry less difficult for themselves and people like them because it wasn't set up to accommodate people like them. Is, is there something about there being a women that is somehow important to this mission over and above just their gender? Well, I think you have to look at it with respect to positional power, and they're the furthest away from that. <laughs> so in a lot of cases, when you're talking about the Black narrative, whatever it is that women are doing gets assumed in that narrative, and it's a form of erasure. So even though they're doing some of the most substantive and powerful work within these communities, also, just going back to your first question, why I decided to do this? Because people are just not paying attention. <laughs> it really plugs into this broader debate over equity in arts funding, spurred in 2011 by this report from the National Committee for Responsible Philanthropy on Fusing Arts, Culture, and, and Social Change. What is the state and the con- kind of consensus around you know, responsible patronage and arts funding today? I think what's going on now is that people are more interested in really rewriting the rules <laughs> as <laughs> much as they can in order to make it a more equitable space for, for artists of color. Um, and I also feel like as a community, in order to attract kind of next generation investment, people are more interested in your institution being equitable and having these social justice centered missions, because that's the type of work they're willing to support. When it comes to philanthropy for a long time, the place where the rubber has really hit the road is in these arguments for the economic impact that creating a a dynamic local cultural scene is going to have on a city. But that kind of view of patronage and this kind of positive hope for outcome has really totally changed. I mean, what happened to that? I, I mean, I'm not sure if it's totally changed. I feel like people are starting to think about whether or not they're willing to accept different ideals. And I think a good example of this in a way that we can segue to a different city that I profiled um, is Cezanne Charles. She worked in Detroit and she basically worked for a decade to try to rewrite the rules to very simply, to put it as simply as possible, give value back to the creators who help build up these systems because that's just not how it ordinarily works. (laughs) So, which I mean, just on the face of it, that's just a mind blowing statement. Like the artists that basically make the thing valuable don't actually get the support they need to continue to making the thing valuable. And um, a good example of this is Janine Whitfield of the Heidelberg Project. She's actually the chief executive officer of the Heidelberg Project. Mm-hmm. The legendary Heidelberg Project. Can you just, uh, for any listeners who don't know about the, the Heidelberg Project? Yeah, so it's her now husband, Tyree Guyton, and um, he created the Heidelberg Project years ago, I think in the 80s. And it's basically just It's kind of like Homewood. It's taking the environment, seeing that it's been neglected and trying to rebuild it through art making. And um, they've been doing that for years. And throughout this entire time, they felt cash-strapped as an organization, even though they're a proven economic driver for the city. 
And just imagine how kind of terrible and frustrating that may feel. You see how much influence you have locally and internationally, and the city still doesn't give you the respect of supporting you. So, I mean, in the end, it's kind of like, how much can the city respect me if my relationship with it isn't reciprocal? What I'm bringing to it is not being given back. There was one person you quoted in your article who was talking about the desire to shorten the time frame between investment in culture and some kind of real economic bang for your buck outcome and how this has really you know, inspired people to uh, invest in things like biennials, triennials, these major kinds of shows that create the kind of tourism dynamic very quickly instead of the real investment into the grassroots of the art community. I mean, and we all play a role in that, even people like us, because they do have these biennials and we all of a sudden start paying attention to the community that we have basically ignored for years. You know, so it basically, it's a feedback loop, which is really dangerous and doesn't support black communities. It is a lot faster. I mean, just from a practical standpoint, if you throw a biennial in your city and then you start inviting art journalists to go there mm-hmm. for like a, a week's junket and go explore the city and et cetera, then that, that's going to get a much bigger effect than if you just start giving money to artists directly. Yeah, but then you have to consider what effect that is. You know, is it does it have a harmful effect for the local communities? These are the considerations that people don't make. And these are the considerations exactly. like people like Janine Whitfield and other people that are working in more grassroots organizations think about more deeply, but unfortunately, those initiatives aren't supported because you don't see the immediate results from that investment. A lot of the women that you spoke to for this article have been doing this work for a long time. And you said how the incentives for philanthropy are starting to shift from doing this kind of get-rich-quick cultural economy scheme to something that is is more, you know, organic and and community integrated. Are they optimistic about this shift? Some people are, but then things happen. Like when, you know, Cezanne, like I was mentioning, she spent a a good deal of time trying to rewrite the rules of um, investment within Detroit. And then all of our initiatives were basically disbanded last year. Um, Some of them are repurposed under different organizations, but for the most part, the organization you worked for called Create and Many was shut down. So when things like that happen and when the main infrastructure that's trying to rewrite these rules is um, shut down, it doesn't do much for hope for the future. Hmm. I mean, do you think there's any way to balance this idea of economic revival and you know this investment with some kind of dollar sign motivation attached to it with an actual organic, you know, artist-directed form of patronage? I I mean, I hope so. And I think it's also going to fall in line with, like I was saying before, the idea that this is what institutions need to do in order to attract next level and next generation investment. And unfortunately, I feel like that's going to be the driver, not because they want to do good for their community, because they want to make sure that they're going to be adequately resourced. It does go back to what seems to be the consistent refrain, which is that everything just takes a lot more time than maybe is uh, glamorous, you know? I think the whole industry needs to divorce itself from this idea of glamour. And I think that's the problem. It's incongruent with the idea of social justice. It's 
the idea that the, the whole space is elitist and it's trying to separate it, itself from other people and that's where it, where it gets its cachet and that's where it derives its value, it is not going to work anymore. <laughs> that's the, that's mm-hmm. the point. You, you pay for something like Hudson Yards and you cut a gigantic check and you have a big party and you say you're going to give a couple of seats to people from low-income communities yeah. around the city. I think that ends up being perceived as performative and and it probably is performative and it has nothing to do with the fundamentals of their enterprise. And again, I'm trying to be hopeful just because I'd like to see the art world move forward in a way that's more equitable. But the people who are running it have to actually feel this way. They have to actually want to do it. It seems to me a kind of a larger project in your journalism in terms of the stories that you choose and the way that they fit together almost like puzzle pieces. And you've written about the balance of power in the art world and how much responsibility rests on a couple of black power brokers like the Studio Museum in Harlem's curatorial team. You've written about art schools, art stars, a lot of different elements. How does your reporting here kind of change what you think is important to investigate and and the kind of work that needs to be done? Um... I, I don't feel like I'm doing anything terribly smart. I just feel like I'm paying attention to things that people have chosen actively to not pay attention to. It's just who I am, you know? And I'll continue to do that when, I, as long as I see, you know, to me it's really glaring. So and it's glaring and it's not being addressed and, and that's what really kind of drives what I do. I'm going to be very excited to see what you decide to write about next. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Thank you.